Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now last time out, we had the views of a chartered building surveyor as Damien Fogg joined me on the show to share his experience and expertise. Now I don't plan to repeat and rehash all of what Damien said last time. However, I did want to take a look at the subject of undertaking works more from my own point of view as a more hands-off and remote investor. There'll still be some common themes to what Damien shared last time, but equally a few differences as well. So make sure you review both of these episodes to get a rounded perspective on undertaking works in property and to understand what suits you the most. So what do we have to look forward to in today's show then? Well, we're going to define the different types of works project. We're going to explore some common principles, share some of my golden rules, and discuss how to go about undertaking works from a distance. And we have another great five-star review in the Your Voice, and not just one, but four great resources related to undertaking works in a property project under the shout-out segment. So let's get cracking then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. So when we're undertaking any work on an investment property, there are different types of projects. And here's a brief summary of the main ones and and, and an outline definition. We've got refurbishment and renovation projects, uh, which is where we bring a tired property back into a decent condition based around its existing use and layout. Next, we have conversion and extension projects, or conversion or extension projects, where we alter the entire property or indeed a part of a property to turn it into something else or to add usable space instead. Then we have development and reconstruction projects. Here we're going to either create something new or rebuild something altogether. Finally, um, it would be inappropriate if I didn't at least mention repairs and maintenance projects because they are still relevant. Uh, And this is where we're maintaining elements of a property over time to ensure it remains in a reasonable and habitable condition. So whilst there are different types of works project, there are some relatively common principles that I would like to share with you right now in terms of undertaking works. Here are some of the common principles, if you like. First of all, we, can, uh, we need to assess and scope out the required works. This means quantifying the extent and the scale of the works that are going to be required. We need to decide on the level of finish that is required to fit our purpose, and that will differ depending on what our exit or plans with the property will be. And of course, we need to assess how much time and how much money in terms of a budget we're going to spend on the property. The next area to consider is estimating the cost and indeed the return of undertaking works. We need to work out what level of works is essential and indeed what is desirable. 
and we may find that um, you know there are <laughs> when we spec out our own house for example there's probably a lot of desirables that are going in there but investment property is not really about desirables it's more about essentials unless of course the desirables are going to add some value which we'll come on to in a minute which is the next point adding value so we need to understand what works are going to add value to our investment and I use um, a, a calculation called return on works invested ROWI so it's a variation on return on investment but here I'm just looking at the return or the upside just from undertaking works and that's usually in the form of a higher end valuation to either sell on or refinance equally I need to look at the opportunity cost the opportunity cost of doing something versus not doing something something to weigh up and we may find for example that um, you know some aspects of undertaking works in a property they're not really seen and uh, a lot of people might not at face value um, be, be taken in by the added value uh, of things that go on behind the scenes but they may still need to be done and they may be found out by a surveyor such as Damien if we were to come and, uh, come and inspect the property and we left a load of uh, problems uh, lurking in the background so there is an opportunity cost let's say and then the other factor to keep in, in mind, particularly if we want to keep this property, is to uh, make sure that ongoing maintenance costs are kept to a minimum as well. And this is where perhaps it's worth spending a little bit more money at the front end or a higher quality of, uh, of finish if we intended to keep that property and want to uh, sorry, keep our maintenance costs to a minimum going forward. Another area which is worth um, looking into closely is making sure that we acquire the necessary approvals and permissions. Now we did talk about this a little bit last time, but there's things like planning permission and building control from the authorities that we need to make sure that we have in place. Then there are uh, other people who have a, a direct interest in the property, such as freeholders or management companies, if it's uh, if it's a leasehold block and that kind of thing. So, uh, indeed, there could be covenants that are in the title deeds which uh, restrict our capability of doing certain things. So, we need to review all of those interests and seek the necessary permissions if we want to make alteration. And then there are sort of third party interests, if I can call it that, people like lenders and insurers. And, um, and they will probably have something to say as well. For example, a lender may restrict our capability of changing the use of a property or separating out uh, part of the title, for example, without their express permission, because it could water down their security. And similarly with insurance, <coughs> excuse me, we need to make sure that the works we're undertaking are fully compliant and, and uh, with regulation and that sort of thing, and we're employing trades, and we're making sure that the uh, an empty property is not empty without inspection, and those sorts of things to safeguard our insurance uh, interests. The next major area really is all about appointing and indeed contracting with trades and builders, the people who are going to be undertaking the works for us. We've got a number of choices we can make here. We can go for a main contractor route um, where we just appoint one party who in turn is bringing in all of the necessary people in the team to undertake the project. Or indeed we can actually um, appoint individual trades for each particular job and of course then we would end up doing a lot of the management activity that's involved in that. So there's a couple of variations on that but they're the main routes that we could take. Next is how are we planning to um, pay for the works? Now that could be a fixed price arrangement or it could be some sort of variable cost arrangement such as price and materials. And we need to decide which one is going to be best for us and there's pros and cons of each one. And in terms of contract 
there is a, an informal contract and a formal contract basis. Um, and we will talk a little bit later about, about some resources that we can go to there for some of the formal contracts. But something written, um, you know, un, uh, an understanding of what work is to be taken and how much money it's going to cost can indeed form a contract. But there's not a lot of protection in an email, uh, I can tell you. You can even look at verbal contracts, but it's very, very hard to prove those. So having some sort of uh, written agreement is definitely advisable. And indeed, having a contract which we're in control of is probably more preferable than relying on one that's given to us from our, from the tradesperson. And then in terms of payment, we have to decide how are we going to pay. This could be through milestone payments, progress payments as various stages are met. We also need to consider whether we're going to offer incentives or indeed take away penalties. Uh, for example, uh, for early completion, late completion and that kind of thing. So there's a few things to consider there, certainly in terms of dealing with the trades and the builders. Then, of course, we've got managing the works itself, often called project management. Now we need to understand what is the total time of the project and indeed what's called the critical path. So the critical path is basically a sequence of events where everything is dependent on the previous activity taking place. Uh, and that's where you get things like first fix and second fix in ter terms of building projects and this sort of thing. You can't undertake second fix until you've done first fix, just to illustrate the point. So you can't decorate a property until you've rewired it. Um, because clearly, if you uh, if you rewire it after decoration, you're probably going to end up ruining and, ruining and spoiling it. So having a total time and indeed the critical path is important. The critical path will also have a bearing on what has to happen at certain points in time, for example, organizing materials and services to come in at the right moment. Um, you can have a just-in-time approach or you can have things waiting on site. If you have things waiting on site, you run the risk of them being spoiled or even stolen. So there's a few balancing acts to be had here. And then, of course, the other thing in terms of managing the project is all about decision making and indeed overcoming obstacles because, you know, the projects don't always go 100 percent, you know, smoothly and we may need to overcome obstacles. What if a tradesperson doesn't show up? What if the materials are late? What if we uncover a problem? That's the sort of decision making and the action that the project manager of the works needs to undertake. So quite a lot of things there to consider. But I wanted to share with you a little bit more about my own approach, really, and some of my, what I like to call, my golden rules. So here are some of the rules that I tend to adopt when it comes to looking at projects uh, involving undertaking works. Uh, they're in no particular order, but um, the first one is I, develop, I have developed a rule called the 40% rule. And I use this particularly for flips and refurb, refurbish and refinance projects, which are called BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance. And I tend to look for a 40% plus difference between my target purchase price, or the, 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 the purchase price, and the property's end valuation after undertaking the works. This is a simple rule, really, which allows some headroom to cover the costs of works, finance and holding costs, and indeed my pro profit margin. So it's a rule of thumb. If I don't see a 40% gap, um, often it's a project I won't spend a lot of time on due diligence on, unless someone's telling me there's hardly any works, or indeed I can flip it on very, very quickly so my finance and holding costs are low. So, you know, I can vary it a little bit, but it's a nice, simple rule just to quickly sanity check if that project's likely to work for me or not. Then I have uh, an end profit offer rule, um, which is basically how I determine what my maximum purchase price for a property might look like. And, and really, I, what I do is I take the projected end value after works, 
which is based on some recent local comparable sales. I then deduct the uh, estimated cost of works, finance and holding costs, and then indeed my required profit margin, which is uh, in pound notes terms. And this would then tell me the most I could afford to pay for the property in order to make my required profit. And then, of course, I'd be offering no more than that uh, that that final value, probably less because I might need to up my offer. Uh, and of course, I can I can make a better profit if I can get my offer accepted at that lower value. So that's how I would go about um, working out the uh, end profit offer uh, price calculation. Next, really wanted to share was that you know different projects call for different project risk margin. And I have different, you know, minimum profit margin expectations for different types of project. And usually there is uh, more time, risk and indeed complexity as we progress through this value chain of project. So, for example, refurb and flip projects uh, will be at least 15% return on investment as far as I'm concerned. Conversion projects, on the other hand, will be at least 20% plus um, you know, uh, return on investment and in and development projects will be at least 30% return on investment. Now, please consider these are re minimum levels of return and, and quite often they're higher. But having them uh, set as minimums allows me to, again, quickly assess whether a deal is likely to meet my requirements or not. And also, don't forget, by uh, using finance, we can use less of our own cash. And so this often leads to an increase in the return on investment on our personal funds invested. Indeed, I was looking at a, a development project recently where the it was a new build development and the projected ROI was something like 20%, which is quite low for that kind of project because there's a lot of risk involved in new build. There could be un, uh, delays, unexpected costs and that sort of thing. And that's part of the explanation where why the return on investment rises depending on that type of project. But that was based on a cash purchase. Now, many people might be happy with a 20% return on investment, bearing in mind what I said about risk, it could, it, the, the reality could be lower than that. But, you know, if we were applying uh, finance to on the land and indeed development finance, um, what I discovered is I could increase that return on investment from 20% for a cash purchase to something like, I think it was 54% for a financed project, fully financed project. Now, of course, you've got a lot of holding costs and that sort of thing to consider when you're using finance. You've got an extra layer because you're going to do, go deal with all the finance providers and that kind of thing. So uh, there's going to be some interference and some bureaucracy involved. But I would suggest that potentially uh, the idea of using less of our own money and indeed more than doubling the returns uh, is possibly worth exploring. So anyway, different uh, project risk margins depending on the nature of the project is another golden rule. Another one I use is to stress test the numbers with the what-if scenario or what-if scenarios. And I tend to have a, a best, a worst and a mid-case scenario when I'm evaluating a project. Probably settling on the mid-case to make a decision provided the sufficient margin in it to cover the downside of the worst case. And what I tend to do is I flex the time, the cost and indeed the end value to stress test the project to help me to decide. So obviously I've got my minimum profit margin that I mentioned earlier and then I'm looking at all these different characteristics which I, I use by um, careful due diligence if you like and working out what's likely to happen. Now of course they're only estimates but they're a useful reference point and there's a degree of science in it that's for sure. 
One word of caution though is just to be careful not to be either too optimistic or indeed too pessimistic on every aspect of the project because either one can actually work against us um, leading to either a reckless decision on the one hand or no projects at all on the other. So depending on whether we're too optimistic or too pessimistic. So, you know, do the different variations and then make a, a decision based on some, you know, reasonable uh, expectations and judgment calls, rely on, relying on some evidence if we have that available to us. Evidence in the form of what's going on in the market, but also our own experience. And if we don't have a lot of experience, we can rely on others and indeed what's going on in the marketplace. Another golden rule that I've always adopted is the, what I call the contingency rule. So I always have a line item for contingencies in my projects. And, I, and, and this can be flexed you know, based on your level of experience. But 10% um, uh, to 25% is customary. I know Damien last time talked about 5% being his minimum. Perhaps that's uh, suitable in his personal case. But I tend to have around about 10% as a contingency for my uh, my projects now. But if you don't have a lot of experience, uh, consider having a, a higher level of uh, contingency because that can be eaten quite easily with an unexpected problem on a property. And um, and don't be tempted. A lot of people go, uh, well, you know, we'll, we can afford a lower profit margin because basically if we don't use a contingency, that all goes to profit. That's a, don't do that. <laughs> it's there for a reason. Have a contingency, have it there. And if you don't end up using it, great, happy days. We've made more profit than we expected. But trust me, the amount of time that we've dipped into the contingency, you'll be glad it's there, I can, I can assure you. So another of the golden rules uh, I like to have is to have two or even three exits if possible. Now we're gonna be talking about exits next time up uh, as we progress through the investment property life cycle. But, um, so I won't dwell on it too much here, but on any project, I think it's wise to have several exit options if at all possible. So for example, those options might be to either sell the property on, then it could be to refinance and let it out instead, or alternatively, it could be to extend any short-term financing that we might have and defer a sale instead. So that would be three you know, clear uh, exit options on a particular project. And what I would tend to do then is weigh up these options, assessing the returns in each case. Of course, I'd undertake some due diligence to assess each one in turn. Things like average time to sell, average time to let, that sort of, sort of thing. What the demand is like in the local area. Uh, I weigh up all of these different factors and then what will uh, you know, work out is which exit is going to be more favourable uh, than, uh, than the other ones. Now, it could be the case that we find that there is only one realistic exit. Sometimes that happens on flip projects, for example, it's not necessarily a strong rental area, so it tends to point towards a flip and therefore a, sell a selling the property on. Uh, then in that case, what we need to make sure is that our margin is big enough to stand it going slightly off course, for example, taking longer to sell. So I did talk earlier about having minimum uh, profit margins. This would be a, a case really where potentially if we've only got one, one exit, we might look for you know, having, having a better margin just in case it takes us a bit longer. Um, that's, that's, that would be a sensible and professional way of looking at things at least. Another golden rule that I like to adopt is the three quotes rule. Now, okay, if we're, if we're merely fixing a leaky tap, then this does not really um, you know, apply. However, for any significant level of expenditure, always ensure that we get at least three different quotes. And if we follow all the guidance that I've made about referrals and recommendations to identify who to invite to quote and, and then ask them to submit a written quote for the job in hand, then it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna help us. 
But make sure that when we, we do uh, get to compare the quotes that we're comparing apples with apples. Some, some people and some trades will provide a, a quote on a different basis to other ones. So having, having a written program of works will certainly assist with this. But do be prepared to consider alternative ways of doing things or standards of finish that maybe the, the tradesperson suggests. But also keep in mind the implication of changing the program on your overall objective for the property. So three quotes rule um, will stand you in good stead. Um, you know, I think if it's like a change in a light bulb, maybe that's a bit OTT. Definitely a waste of everybody's time, I would suggest, for that level. But on any significant level of works, definitely have free quotes. Try and have a, a written specification that uh, builders and tradespeople are, are quoting against and understand what their terms and conditions might look like. But now I've looked at the golden rules, and what I wanted to do is consider some. Uh, ideas specifically dealing with managing uh, a works project from a distance and if you remember that's pretty much me that's uh, how I like to look at things so undertaking works remotely here are some of the things I tend to consider when undertaking works from a distance the first thing really is all about leveraging local people and this could be local agents particularly letting agents but it could also be other investors in the local area as well there's always a risk, of course, that good people, good tradespeople, will be too busy to undertake your project when you need them to. But it's still worth testing and asking. And even the best work uh, on referrals and recommendations, so do keep that in mind. Um, one other thing perhaps to keep in mind here is that um, <clears throat> if a good uh, trade tradesman or builder is, uh, is very, very busy, they'll quote high. Uh, because it will only become you know worthwhile to them if they're going to get a decent margin. So you sometimes get an outlier, um, if I can call it that, of a, of a high quotation from somebody who's come highly recommended. Just because they're so busy, they may end up quoting higher. So in that situation, I might eliminate the outlier, the very high quote, and perhaps get another one in to substitute them. So I've got you know something of a, of a frame of reference that I can com uh, compare with. Um, I talked about uh, seeking out recommendations and referrals. So it's always good if we can get you know, a first-hand recommendation. And clearly, the best recommendation is going to come from people we know, know and trust. But if we don't know people personally, we can use network meetings, <coughs> forums, and indeed social media to help with this, uh, this side of things. There are sites such as Trust a Trader and similar things like that which can also be used, but choose wisely as you don't know the people who are making the recommendations here. It could be their mother, their brother, their, you know, their best mate and that sort of thing. So um, go with people who've got lots of recommendations is probably the tip I would use in that particular case. Something that I tend to do is uh, I have what I call a trusted advisor. And uh, this is someone that can give advice on estimates and quotes, they can undertake an inspection or indeed monitor the works that are being completed. Uh, so it could be a good personal contact with knowledge of property and building or a contractor like a project manager or a surveyor, for example. So um, you, know, you can go either way. You know, I, I guess if, you, um, if you're leaning too heavily on someone who understands property, then um, you, you're going to annoy them if you just drag them along to projects. So you do, you do need to uh, cut them in on the deal in some way, whether that's paying them or, or some other way. But have a trusted advisor um, who understands things and can do things on your behalf is invaluable. And of course, what we really need to make sure we do with when taking works is to have a written agreement of the schedule of works uh, or a project plan. 
And this helps you know, there to be a clear objective of what's intended and then acts as a reference point to assess the final quality of the job that once it's been completed. Now the project plan setting out even in broad terms what should be done in what order and by when can be very helpful uh, as a reference to assess progress and indeed uh, put things back on course if it seems to be running behind. The last thing you want is to be quoted 12 weeks to undertake a project, get to week 11 and find out that you know it's nowhere near complete. So it's great to have some form of uh, progress, idea of progress and a project plan however simple uh, can help to do that. Another thing that I've, I've learned uh, really is to consider asking for what's called a method statement. Now this is really a description of exactly how work will be undertaken and involves things like uh, what materials will be used and how the end result will be achieved, how things will be done in other words. So you, we don't get caught out by um, when, when the finish isn't exactly what we had in mind. You know, we might say, well, we want something doing and the, the tradesperson undertaking the work has something completely different. Ending up in maybe different size tiles to what we're expecting, uh, maybe cheap materials that are being used that will be re need to be replaced sooner rather than later, which is no good to us if we're going to hold that property for any, any length of time. Or potentially a less than acceptable finish than, uh, when we're maybe trying to impress a would-be buyer. Um, and all this can be avoided by asking what is the method, the statement, or how are you intending to undertake this kind of work, talking it through really, ideally having that itemised. And, and decent trades will, will itemise this out um, for you. Another thing to do is to de-risk the project. And uh, we can de-risk it by having things like retentions, that's withholding a, a sum of money for a period of time until all the project is fully completed, including snagging. We can have fixed price agreements and we indeed we can have some insurances. Now the retention of monies is usually in the region of 5 to 15% um, probably 5 to 10 more realistically and can help to ensure any snagging issues as I mentioned are completed from the builder or tradesman in order for them to get paid in full. But do consider that with retentions that many builders price this into the job, particularly if they end up not getting paid them. So make sure you, you bring this up after getting your quotes at the contracts and, and therefore bringing it in at the contract stage. So get the quote, then introduce the, the idea of retention at contract stage is the recommendation. Now, fixed price agreements can reduce the risk of, of us being hit for extras, as they're called. However, keep in mind that if the works are not that well specified or are changed midway through, this can lead to significant add-on charges to the contract of you know, change of works order and this sort of thing. Now, some builders will limit their risk with a provisional cost for certain line items, especially when they cannot fully inspect what, what is required. This might be, for example, under floorboards, behind walls and that sort of thing. Now equally, if we intend to transfer the risk to the tradesman doing the work, then they quite understandably will try to reduce or at least limit their risk. And they'll do this potentially by pricing higher or having financial caps or other contractual limitations on their liability. So keep that in mind. But finally, have, some, have adequate insurance in place. You cannot really insure for a project overrunning and cost as such. However, we can have a good policy that can protect in the case of an insured risk arising. Things like subsidence, accidental damage, uh, in some cases, not all, not all insurances have accidental damage, but potentially worth having that third party liability, uh, that kind of thing. And indeed, have a, um, if you're undertaking works, make sure 
that you check with your insurer that you you can leave the property uh, empty overnight for a period of time what are the rules around that normally you have to go and check on the property and that sort of thing so uh, there, there are ways in which you can de-risk a project and really the fine po- uh, sorry the final point in this section is uh, what I call the four eyes approach to checking things off um, so this is really where we got two people two sets of eyes four eyes looking and checking is better than than one uh, unless you are very very experienced that is now I tend to use photos and video to see how the work will be undertaken from a distance if I cannot be there in person so uh, someone's there under you know inspecting work on my behalf they're probably gathering photographic and video uh, reference points that I can have a look at so there's the four eyes that I tend to tend to adopt so there we go. I kind of rattle a lot through there. There's, um, it's really sort of a, a sharing of, of how I tend to look at undertaking works. And, and bear in mind that I'm a, I'm a, a primarily an investor. Um, I'm re- I often re- work remotely and I'm very much hands off. So that's, that's, this is a summary really of how, how I tend to look at projects. Last time out, of course, we had Damien, who, who's probably a little bit different. He's a bit more hands-on, uh, more local, and, um, and, 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 and obviously more experienced being a chartered building surveyor with the, the nuts and bolts and the nitty-gritty of undertaking work. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we, we've really got you know two different perspectives. There is some common ground, as you'd have noticed, um, but there's also some slight differences. So really consider what kind of investor uh, you are, uh, what your strengths are, and play to those strengths. But that hopefully should give you a couple of different perspectives that you can adopt on on your next works project. But right now, we'll leave it and let's have a listen to uh, one one of our listeners and and what they have to say. Up next is your voice. It's all about you and your property world. Now we return with another listener review in today's Your Voice. And this time we have a five-star review which comes from Desange77 who says, Great Property Investor Podcast, five stars. This property podcast stands out from the rest because Richard has done a great job of tackling difficult subjects articulately. The topics are covered are a must for all investors. Richard has his own unique style in explaining the subject matter well. Kazo is a great Sorry, Kaza is great and her contribution adds a different dimension to the topic. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks very much for the time and trouble to leave uh, a review for the show, Desange77. And it, it really makes us smile to see the show being so well received, I have to say. It always brings a smile to my face. So I, I very much appreciate the time and effort you put into leaving those reviews. Um, it means a lot to me. It gives me a great deal of encouragement to carry on doing what I'm doing. It's you know, been about 10 months now, I think, something like that. Uh, actually, it's about 11 months since we started the podcast. So um, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to do this every single week, I have to tell you. So keep those reviews coming through. It's kind of a, a little bit of fuel in the tank that, uh, that keeps us going. So appreciate that. So who's going to be next to have their five-star review read out on the show? Could it be you? Well, it could be, but only if you leave us one, of course. So what are you waiting for? <laughs> and now, where you can go for more great resources with a shout-out. Now, in today's shout out, I thought I'd be, you know, I'm feeling a little bit generous. So I thought I'd share some useful resources for undertaking works in, in, today's, uh, in today's shout out. And not only one, but I thought I'd actually share four very useful resources for you to check out at, uh, at your own leisure that you might find helpful when you're undertaking your next works project. The first one is LNPG, the Landlords National Property Group. 
And this is a syndicated buyers club where discounts on common items for refurbishment works can be sourced. So it's kind of a load of investors clubbing together really to negotiate bulk discounts with uh, trade suppliers and that kind of thing. So next kitchen or bathroom, they've negotiated uh, prices down. I think they've also got an insurance offer and things like that. So well worth checking out. You do need to pay to be a member, but if you do any any level of uh, refurbishment works, then it can be very, very helpful to, uh, to be a member of that. The next one, um, well, the next couple actually are a couple that Damien mentioned last time out as well, but I think they're very, very useful. The first one is the Building Sheriff. And this is a great resource that helps to make uh, make sense when it comes to job costing works in a property. Very useful, that is. Uh, so pay a visit to the Building Sheriff, and all the links are going to be in the show notes. So don't worry about me uh, having to write out the, the full uh, URLs. The next one is uh, regarding contracts, and uh, Damien again mentioned JCT Suite, the JCT Suite, the Joint Contracts Tribunal, uh, which is JCT, has a selection of uh, contract templates to suit nearly all types of works in property. So when it gets to contracting, all we need to do is go and get one of the standard templates that's suitable for the job and present that to our tradesperson or builder concerned, and they should be familiar with that. Um, they might not. They might not. They may prefer to even not have one or use their own, but uh, that would be well worth uh, checking out. I would suggest. And then there's another one from me, which is um, particularly at the the upper end of doing uh, you know building works, conversions, development works, that sort of thing. And there's a number of tools out there, but one I wanted to share is the build cost calculator that uh, Juicen have produced. And this is a simple calculator which you can use to estimate the cost of building a property in different regions using different approaches, so different types of contract arrangement, that kind of thing. So a useful ready reckoner, uh, particularly if you're looking at a development project, so um, to help you assess whether a project is worthwhile or not. So there we go, four resources all related to undertaking works of some degree uh, in your in your property projects. Um, and, and there we go, it's the second instalment of Undertaking Works. More of a look from the perspective of a remote investor this time around, as obviously I've given more of a personal insight. But I hope you found it useful. And um, we're drawing, indeed drawing towards the end of the current series, uh, looking at the investment property life cycle. But having explored now the acquire, finance, and indeed the works phases, we've only got the exit phase left to consider. So why don't you join me next time as we take a look at the exit phase and why it's so important and important enough to have a, a phase named after it all on its own. But feel free to start a conversation about property with me. You can email me podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. Meanwhile, as always, the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. However, as always, I'd just like to say thank you very much for listening again uh, this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.